This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Come with me, please, to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. And we'll read a few verses from verse 8. Verse 8 to verse 11 of 2 Kings. Uh, another half an hour or so, Norman and David, you'll see them slipping out. It's not that I have offended them with my preaching. <laughs> but there's a, a medical appointment that has been made and cannot be broken. And, uh, but everything's okay. Nothing to worry about, but just it has to be done. All right, so 2 Kings 6, verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel. And he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down here. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there not just once or twice. Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. So he said, Go and see where he is that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, Surely he is in Dothan. Therefore he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. The servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And so he answered, Do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Amen. Thank God for our physical eyes. Unless we would be visually impaired, we probably don't even give them a second thought. What a blessing it is to be able to see all the beauty that surrounds us. With our physical eyes, we're able to see light in all of its hues and shades, glorious sunsets, fantastic sunrises, beautiful rainbows, dusk and dawn, and all of them with all of their hues and colors. Mike Massimino is an Italian-American astronaut. And in his book, Spaceman, he said that whenever you go 350 miles up into space to repair the Hubble telescope, which he's done twice, he said, you see sunlight in a way that is absolutely impossible to see on Earth. Because all sunlight that reaches us has to come through the filter of our atmosphere. 
And that's what gives us the various hues and shades. But he said up there where there is no atmosphere, therefore there's no filter. He says that sunlight is the whitest, clearest, brightest, most purest light that you could ever see. In fact, he said that the space shuttle that he was on and the colors in it and the colors on his badges on his space suit, he says they just pop. He says they're so vibrant because of the pure light. And so that's a wonderful thing that none of us will ever see in our lifetimes, I'm sure. It's only a special few people has ever got to see that. However, notwithstanding the extraordinary power that our eyes have got, yet they are limited. We cannot see with our physical eyes. We cannot see X-rays or gamma rays. We cannot see the infrared wavelength. We cannot see a number of things that until we get telescopes and spectrometers and, and infrared cameras and all those things, then the whole electromagnetic spectrum was just a mystery to us. We had no idea because we couldn't see it with our physical eyes. But our physical eyes is also limited in another way. It's limited because we cannot see the spirit world. We can only see this world. And as I have said, sometimes not very well. But beyond our physical eyes, if God was to open up our spiritual eyes, then what we would see around us would astonish us. We'd be astounded at what we could actually see that is hidden from our sight right now. Elisha's servant came out the door early that morning he looked up, and the hills were absolutely surrounded on every side with this great Syrian army. And no doubt his heart sank. Surely he and Elisha were done for. Now Elisha used to be a farmer, now he's a prophet, but he never was experienced in warfare, and even if he had been, the odds were too great. And so, seemingly, there was no chance. Alas, my master, what shall we do? A kind of a note of desperation. <laughs> he looked all around, and on every side, all he saw was problems. Elisha, on the other hand, he looked through different eyes. And because he looked through different eyes, he saw differently. His young servant could only see with the natural eyes, but Elisha the prophet saw with his spiritual eyes. And he said, do not fear, for those that are with us are more than those that are with them. He could see beyond the natural not all the time, of course. But from time to time, God would open eyes, pull back the curtain, and let us see into the spirit world. Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, in that moment, 
God allowed their eyes to be opened. And they saw Jesus, but they saw Moses and Elijah talking with him about his, what was going to happen to him. And they were so excited and thrilled that they could see this. They wanted to stay right there and see more that God wouldn't let them. They'd have to go down that mountain. They'd have to go to the valleys. There was a ministry to do. There was people to reach. There was a gospel to be preached. But just in that moment, for that moment, their eyes were opened. The Bible tells us that the apostle Paul was caught up into the third heaven and saw things that was unlawful for him to even tell another human being. We know that John... The apostle, we know that on the other Patmos, we know that he, his eyes were open and he could see into the very throne room of God. We know that Jacob, he saw a great stairway reaching into heaven, a ladder, he said. And on it, the angels of God ascending and descending. Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian church, when he was being martyred, when he was being stoned to death, he looked up and he could see the Son of God, he says, standing, Son of Man, standing at the right hand of God. And so there has been occasions and times when God has opened human eyes to see a supernatural world that is constantly there, always there, forever there. It's just at this moment we can't see it. Yes, we're citizens of a heavenly kingdom, but right now we live in a material, physical world. But we've got to remember that beyond that material, physical world, there's a supernatural world. There's a world that is fantastic, that is beyond our imagination. When John was speaking in Revelation, he spoke in the language of appearance. He had never seen streets of gold. He had never seen a sea like glass. It's all the way he could describe what he was seeing because there was nothing on earth like it. One day, of course, we'll all get to see that when we go to the glory. But right now, we're limited. Paul, or, Paul said, do you not know that one day that you will judge the angels? Remember there's people arguing in the Corinthian church they're going to teach each other to court. He says, is there no one wise among you who can deal with this? He says, do you not know that one day you're going to judge the angels? Do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. As I was reading this this week, a couple of things caught my attention just about that statement. Do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. The first thing I want to say to you is this. Often what we don't see is more important than what we do see. That's why the Bible says that we walk by faith and not by sight. Often what we don't see is more important than what we do see. Elisha's servant could not see that which was more important. He couldn't see the big picture. He couldn't see the real picture. But Elisha could see it. So what was more important was what the servant couldn't see. 
But Elisha could see what was truly important. You see, the servant, his sight got in the way of his faith. And how many times does that happen to us where our sight gets in the way of our faith, where we only see the problem, we only see the mountain, we only see the difficulty, we only see the enemy around us. That's what we see. Hmm. And our sight gets in the way of our faith. What do you see in the natural? What do you see today in the natural? What is all that you see that the odds are against you? That the enemy is too strong? That the problem is too great? That you're surrounded by difficulty? Is that all you see? Because that's all you will see with your natural eyes. That's what's staring you in the face. That's what the young servant saw with his natural eyes. He could only see problems. He could only see a crisis. He could only see difficulty. But Elisha saw beyond that. And he saw it from the Godward side, from heaven's perspective, rather than from earth's perspective. And Elisha, like Moses of old, who endured seeing him who was invisible. It's amazing how what you can come through and get through and overcome if with your spiritual eyes you can see beyond what you see in the natural. If you can see from heaven's perspective. It's not always easy to do that, but if we can do that, then things begin to look different than just what we can see with our natural eyes. You see, we live constantly in a material, physical world, and it's so easy to forget that we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. Because every single day, that's all we see, the physical. And if we're not careful, we'll forget that we're citizens of a spiritual kingdom, a heavenly kingdom, an invisible kingdom. Everything we have learned since our birth is predicated on what we can see, what we can hear, what we can touch, what we can taste, what we can smell. All of our knowledge since the day we were born has come through our five senses contained in this physical body. But we know that we're more than just a physical body. We're spirit and soul and body. And the Apostle Paul refers to this in 1 Thessalonians 5.23, and he says, Now may the God of peace sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there's a dimension that is beyond this physical dimension we live in, beyond this here and now. And it's more real than this here and now because this here and now will pass away. <laughs> it's going to go. Everything here is going to go. Everything we own, every house we live in, this building, ourselves, one day will be gone. But there's a world out there that is more real in this world, that is forever, that will never fade, that will never fall, that cannot be moved. And that's the world that we're citizens of. 
It has been said that with our body we are world conscious and with our soul we are self-conscious and with our spirit we're God-conscious. And once you become a believer and, and perhaps for the first time you became conscious of your spirit and your soul as well as your body. In other words, the God consciousness part of you was awakened. See, the Bible says we were dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritually, we're dead. But suddenly, we are awakened, and we realize that we have a spirit that God made to commune with him and to be with him forever, as well as our soul and our body eventually. And so suddenly we become aware of an entirely different dimension to our lives than previously we had known or even given much thought to. Now we have become aware of the Holy Spirit whom we cannot see. Now we become aware of angels that we have probably never ever encountered, but we know that they are there. We know there's a world there that's not just physical like this, but is spiritual. So we believe by faith and not by sight that there's a very real but currently invisible world beyond our natural senses that is much more real than the world that we live in. That's the world that we're going to live in for eternity. Hmm. Remember Thomas after Christ's resurrection? Remember how he was not in that room with the other disciples when Jesus first appeared to them? And whenever they went back and gave them the news, you can be sure they were excited and thrilled and they were bursting with the, with the excitement. And they looked at them. And he wasn't excited. He wasn't thrilled. He wanted hard evidence. Something he could see. Something he could touch and feel. He wanted his senses satisfied. It's the world he'd always lived in. Wasn't expecting a resurrection. Wasn't hoping for one. Now he's told there's one. He doesn't believe it. He wants the evidence, hard evidence. And so the next time Jesus appears in that room, he's with them the next time. And if I could paraphrase for you, Jesus would be saying to him, Thomas, come on. You want hard evidence? Here it is. Reach out your finger. Put your finger in the nail prints. Put your finger in my side. Don't be faithless but believing. You want hard evidence? Here it is. You want to live by your senses? Go ahead. But no more. He says, my Lord and my God. Remember what Jesus said after that? Blessed are those who have not seen but yet believed. You believe, Thomas, because you're seeing. But untold millions will not see, yet they will believe. That's faith. That's walking by faith and not by sight. And that ultimately is what God wants for our lives, to walk by faith, not by sight. Elisha said, Lord, Open his eyes that he might see. What do you see today? Do you see only what's in front of you? 
Or do you see beyond that? second thing that got my attention in this was that you're never outnumbered in a battle. Never outnumbered in a battle. If God be for us, who can be against us? For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You are never outnumbered in a battle. That's good news, isn't it? Who are the those that are with them? Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. So Paul makes it clear beyond our sight in the demonic realm, There are great hosts of demonic forces. But thank God there's more that's for us than it's against us. There's more that is with us than is with them. And that's what the young man was saying. Just the physical. And that was bad enough. But Elisha knew there was more than that. He knew there was those who were with them. But then he says there's more that are with us. Because he could see the angelic hosts, the chariots of fire that were surrounding the mountains. Hmm. Who are those that are with us? Well, we have the Holy Spirit as our advocate on earth in John 14. Jesus talks about that. The helper, the advocate, the legal term, a lawyer, one who comes alongside to fight your cause. <laughs> and Jesus Christ, John said in 1 John 2, 1, he is our advocate in heaven. So we have two advocates. We have one on earth and one in heaven. <laughs> Jesus is praying for us. Praying for us. Interceding for us. Talking to the Father about us. Isn't that wonderful? That's his intercessory ministry that's going on 24-7 right now. So when you're in a difficulty, when you're in a crisis, when you're under the cautious that we're and the enemy's attacking you, you can say, but Jesus is praying for me. Lovely to have your friends praying for you. We ought to pray for one another, and we do. But to think that Jesus is praying for me. Hmm. He's my intercessor. He's the one at the right hand of the Father. He's the one who came to this earth, who understands our feelings, the weaknesses of our infirmities. He remembers that we're just dust. He's the one at the right hand of the Father who's thinking about you constantly. He's your advocate. And then we've got the Holy Spirit. He says, I'll not leave you comfortless. I'll not leave you like an orphan when I go. He says, I'm going to send one just like me, only he'll be in you not just with you like I was, he'll be in you. And of course, we have the angels in heaven. In Hebrews 12, 20, Hebrews 1, uh, 14, it says that they are ministers sent forth to minister to those who are heirs of salvation. You know, whenever Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he was going through that terrible agony, 
and the angels came and ministered to him. I wonder what they did. We know that Elijah, whenever he ran from Jezebel and ended up in the desert place and ended up there wanting for the Lord to take his life away, that the angel came and actually gave him some food and something to drink to send him on his way. The Bible says that we could be entertaining angels unawares. You never know, but maybe one day you've met one, but you didn't know because they looked fully human, an angel unaware. Hebrews 12.22 talks about an innumerable number of angels. So no matter how many demonic spirits there are, <laughs> there are an innumerable, uncountable, incalculable number of angels who are sent to minister to those, that's us, who are heirs of salvation. They're all around continually. We may not be aware of them. We don't see them. But they're there. We may never get to see what Elisha saw, what his servant saw. But what they saw shows us they're real. It lets us know that there's a real world out there beyond this temporal passing world that one day will be gone. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Psalm 23, 7 says, Though an army man come against me, my heart shall not fear. The war may rise up against me, and this will I be confident. Deuteronomy 23 and 4. Do not let your heart faint. Do not be afraid. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Psalm 125 and 2. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. Psalm 34 and 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. We probably should be more aware of what is around us. I'm not telling you or saying to you or even hinting at you that you should say, God, show me angels. If God should so desire for one to come to you, then that's his prerogative. But I can't see anywhere in Scripture that tells us that we should pray to see that. So we mustn't get fixated because we walk by faith, not by sight. But at the same token, realize and understand they're there, and they're there for a purpose. Whenever Jacob saw that ladder, notice he saw the angels ascending and descending letting us know that they're here. Then they go up, and then they come down, and they're here. Yes, there are an innumerable number of them. Heaven's filled with them, but around the earth, they're here. And thirdly, whatever plots the devil has against you, God is away ahead of him. He's away ahead of him. God revealed to Elisha the plots of King Ben-Hadad of Syria, who was plotting against the people of God, particularly against the king of Israel. Nothing was hidden from his sight. 
You know, from time to time, the prophets had the deal, Elisha had the deal with Syria. Isn't it interesting that here we are in the 21st century, and way back thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, Israel was still threatened by Syria, and are still threatened this day by Syria. Isn't it interesting when you watch the news today that all these old biblical names come again? What's happening in Damascus? You know, 2,000 years ago where Paul was traveling to and the Lord met him. And so, Elisha had to deal with these names, particularly had to deal with Syria. At one point, he had to go and deliver a message that Ben-Hadab was going to die and another was to take his place. And he said who the other was would take his place. All this happened, of course, because it was God who gave him the insights. Isn't it good to know that nothing is hidden from God's sight? That no secret plot or plan of the evil one that God doesn't know about. We don't know about it, but God knows about it. And if God knows about it, then we're going to overcome. We're going to come through. We're going to have the victory at the end of it if God knows about it. And he does know about it. So I don't worry and fret and get concerned and wonder every day. I wonder what the devil's planned against me. God knows. And if God knows, then he knows how to deal with it. (laughs) I wonder how many plots and plans that we don't know in this life that God has already dealt with that never came to anything because God dealt with it. Sometimes we go through things. Sometimes he allows us to go through things. And that adds to our faith and our perseverance and our patience and all of that and our trust. But I wonder how many things we haven't gone through because God just did not allow it. He knows what we can handle. He knows what we can face, what we can go through. In Job chapter 1, there's that amazing story. of God's servant in the land of Uz. Let me just read a little bit for you. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. Not many of those were about in those days. But here was one. He had seven sons and three daughters that were born to him. Also his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household. So that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. And so here is a man, by today's standards, would be a multi-millionaire, maybe even a billionaire. The richest man in all of the East. Untold wealth he had. And a big family... And the sons would go and feast in their houses each on his appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. (coughs) Thus Job did regularly. (laughs) 
No matter how wealthy you are, no matter how famous you are, if you've got kids, <laughs> you, can, you, you have your concerns about them. You take them to the Lord in prayer, don't you? And your grandchildren too. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? And so Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? Hmm. Before we go any further in this story, let me just tell you one of the, one of the key reasons this was written. Yes, there's the suffering of Job, but that's not the main reason it was written. It's to show us that God's character and God's integrity was being attacked by the evil one. And that's still happening today. The character and the integrity of God is continually under attack by the Satan, by the evil one. Of course, he works through people to do that, but it's still happening. And so, God says, well, you're going up and down the earth. He knows what he's doing. Peter says he's a, like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He says, well, have you considered my servant Job? It's not like him on the earth. He's a righteous man. He's a good man. He loves me. He hates evil. So Satan answered the Lord and says, does Job fear God for nothing? See, here's the accusation. Here's an attack against the character of God. In other words, God, if there was nothing in it for him, would he really serve you? He's only serving you because look at the good he's got out of it. Look at how you've blessed him. Look at all you've given to him. Look at how you're protecting him. In other words, you're buying his favor. <laughs> you're doing all this so that he will love you and serve you. But if he didn't do that, if he hadn't got that, would he still love and serve you? See, there's the accusation against God. God, your ulterior motive is, I'll do all this so you'll love and serve me. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him and around his household, around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, his possessions have increased to the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Aha. You strip him bare, and let's see what he does then. God must have had some confidence in Job, eh? So God says, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power, only do not lay a hand on his person. In all of this, God only allowed Satan to go so far. He was on a leash. And he could only go so far, and God would yank him back. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. A messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. Then the Sabaeans raided them and took them away. Indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, and they raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was still speaking, another came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came and struck across the, came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. It fell on the young people. They are dead. I have alone have escaped to tell you. You think you're having a bad day? I mean, that's as bad a day as he possibly could have. He lost everything he ever owned, everything he had built up for years. And on top of that, he lost every son and every daughter and every servant he had. In one day, he had nothing. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and he fell to the ground and he worshipped and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked shall I return there. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this Job did not sin nor charge God with wrong. Job had no idea. We read this looking back on hindsight. Job had no idea that the devil had approached God and that God had gave permission. He had no idea. Didn't know what was going on out there at all. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. The Lord said to Satan, from, when do you, from whence, from where do you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth, from walking back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and an upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil, and still... He holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without a cause. God is letting him know he's a blameless man, a man of complete integrity, who had not sinned. Wasn't he was sinless, but his sin didn't cause this to happen to him. And so you can be sure that Satan had considered Job. Skin for skin, yes, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will surely curse you to your face. Yes, I've taken everything away from him. Yes, I can see that he still loves you and serves you. But just let me touch him. Let me touch him physically. What has happened to him has touched him emotionally. It's touched him financially. It's touched him materially. But let me touch him physically. Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. You can only go so far. 
So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. He struck Job with painful boils from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took for himself a pot shred of which to scrape himself while he sat in the midst of the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God? Shall we not accept adversity? He didn't even know the devil was involved in this. And all this Job did not sin with his lips. Now, I haven't time, of course, to go into that story in any depths. But if you read through the story, you will see it's full of accusation. Devil accusing God. Job's so-called friends come and accuse Job. It's sin in your life. That was the prevailing thought in that day. It's sin in your life. You have secret sin, so God is punishing you. So you better repent. And then as you read through the book, you'll see there came a time, Job's really, really suffering physically now. There came a time where he began to criticize God. And as you read towards the end of the book, God comes on the scene and he talks to Job. And he shows Job his character and his power and his glory. And Job is sorry. He's sorry he opened his mouth. He's sorry he criticized God because he realized, I shouldn't have done that. I didn't even know what I was talking about. I better put my hand in my mouth. And then God goes to those three so-called comforters and he says, you better repent. I don't like the way you treated my servant, so you better repent or else. In fact, you need to go and apologize to my servant Job because if you don't, you're in serious trouble. And at the end of it, Job has to pray for his three friends. And he prays for them. And God completely sets him free from everything. And if you read the end of the story, and I've read it, it says, And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. This is the last chapter, 10th verse. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now, if you read on down, verse 12. Now, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. For now he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 female donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. So him and his wife must have made up. <laughs> and they had 10 more children. See, beyond what Job could see, there was another world. And God allowed that other world to encroach, in Job's situation, to encroach into his life. And the experience Job got from that, and the blessing when he came through that, was more than he could ever imagined. God gave him twice what he had before. What do you see today. What do you see? Lord, open his eyes that he might see. And as soon as his eyes were opened, he saw those heavenly hosts. He could see what the prophet could see. The great D.L. Moody, the great preacher, a lady came to him after a service one night and said, Mr. Moody, 
I have discovered a wonderful scripture, a great promise. It's been so helpful for me. He says, what is it? She said, it's Psalm 56 and 3. What time I'm afraid, I will trust in thee. He said, that's wonderful. But he says, I've got an even better promise than that. In Isaiah 12 and 2, I will trust and not be afraid. <laughs> Whatever you see will affect your trust. What do you see? Do you see God's for you? Do you see there's a heavenly host that's for you? Do you see that Christ is praying for you? Do you see that? Do you understand that? Do you think that? Do you know that? That helps our trust. Because then we're not putting our confidence in us. And we're not putting our confidence in that which is around us. We're putting our confidence in the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Amen? Let's pray. What do you see? Lord, help us to see beyond what we can see. Give us spiritual eyes. Help us to see the answer, not just the problem. Give us eyes of faith. Lord, whenever we get tired and weary with what we can see, give us eyes of faith to see beyond what we can see so that hope rises. Faith becomes stronger. Lord, we thank you that there's not a problem that you don't have an answer to. There's not a need that you cannot supply. There's not a situation that we face or will face, but that you will be with us. You will be working on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So we bless you today. Thank you for working for our good. Thank you. Your plans for us are good, not for evil, so that we have a hope and a future. We bless you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.